morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, some of you know this, and some of you don't, but there's an extra window up there. You know, half of you probably know this, and I've said this before, uh, but you may have forgotten. Uh, I say it every, maybe every year. You know what's up in the other window? So if you like, you, for example, you go around the back of the church and you were to look up, the stained glass doesn't stop there, it just keeps going. You know what's up there? It says, Christ is risen, and that's what we're going to say this morning too. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. We are in week three uh, of Eastertide, and we have another video for you. This time it comes from the youth. We do have the video, right, guys? Uh, we do, good. I, I did, that was, there were a couple things I didn't check before the service, but that was one. Uh, so uh, I'm going to roll, uh, roll tape. Let's go. my friend. He's with me wherever I go. Jesus is kindness because kindness is everything. Jesus is creative because he created this wonderful universe that we have. Jesus is the best. <laughs> Jesus is someone I can relate to and connect with. Jesus is fulfilling because he fulfills his promises. Jesus is forgiving. He forgave us even though we didn't deserve it, and he died for us. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Jesus is kind, miracle worker, forgiving, rock, prince of peace, gracious, agape, friend, holy, jealous, never ending love, fulfilling, strong, great, sermon titles could keep, uh, I realized, like, we could do this for years, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, I don't think it would actually go stale. I think, like, this is what the church does. Uh, we talk about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus means to us, and I, I love this. Uh, I hope you do, too. Thanks to the priests for pulling that together uh, this past Wednesday night um, at Dog Pound, and uh, wonderful job, youth. Uh, fabulous. Uh, I think somewhere in there, uh, if you didn't hear it, uh, Jesus is better than uh, Chick-fil-A chicken nuggies uh, was, was definitely uh, in there as well. Uh, today, however, we're talking about Jesus is the Christ and what this means. Um, and uh, some of you might actually trip over the word uh, the simple word, the, in this statement. Jesus is the Christ. Uh, we often refer to Jesus Christ or, or use the name Christ, and, and just to kind of clear the air here, Christ is not a, uh, a name, though it does become a, a name later on, and it's, it gets used functionally as a name. But originally, it's a title. It's something that Jesus is. Jesus is 
the Christ. And it's worth asking yourself, what's a Christ? Right? What, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the Christ? Well, this is what we're talking about today. So if you don't have an answer, don't worry. By the end of today, you should. Let's start with the word of prayer, though. God, our Father in heaven, we come this morning and we invite you into this place, into our world and into our hearts. God, we do indeed ask that Jesus be the Christ of our lives. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit in this place fill us, anoint us, that it rush upon us. And Lord, that we leave this place a different kind of people, a people on fire for you and for your kingdom, and that we spread your word far and wide. Pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and indeed our Christ. Amen. Uh, if you've been around the church long enough, uh, you've probably been asked one of the following questions, if frankly not all of the following questions. Uh, they go like this. Do you believe in Jesus? Uh, this is not a terrible question. It just happens to not be a very precise question. Like, do you believe that Jesus exists? Well, sure. I, I think most people uh, in the world believe this. There are some who don't, which is frankly uh, ridiculous. Uh, Jesus as a historical figure is, is very difficult to deny. But we mean more than that, don't we? Right? Or maybe you've been asked, are you born again? Which is biblical language. Zacchaeus gets asked by Jesus himself, or, or, or stated anyway. Jesus says, you need to be born again. And it's not a terrible question. It's, a, frankly, a pretty good question. Have you received Jesus into your heart? This one, for me, is a little lower on the scale of good questions versus not good questions because, one, I, I don't find it in Scripture, but, two, I'm not even sure exactly what that means other than perhaps something that uh, is akin to what I just prayed, which is uh, asking the Spirit to come and indwell us. My guess is that's what we mean by that phrase. Or maybe you've been asked, have you accepted Jesus? Again, a little truncated, maybe too imprecise. And so the, the fuller version of this goes, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And now this one, it's full of all sorts of wonderful Christianese, right? It's actually full of all sorts of wonderful Christian words and theology. If you just simply slow down and take these words one at a time, which is what we started to do last week. Jesus is Lord is what we talked about last week. And if we say that we have accepted Jesus as our Lord, you know, we're part of the way to slowing down and understanding that question. But even before that is, have you accepted Jesus Christ? Right. Well, what does it mean to accept Jesus Christ or Jesus today as the Christ? Well, this is what I want to talk about today. And now, if you don't have your Bibles out, uh, I'm going to ask that you do. Uh, go ahead, if, pull them out. You're going to need them a lot today. Uh, we're going to go through quite a lot of Scripture uh, and it's important that if you don't have them, uh, at least you start to jot some of these uh, passages down. You're going to want this for future reference. 
And we're going to start back where we read today, which is John 20. And in John 20, as I said, as I read scripture, what we find is we're at the end of the entire gospel, John has given us 20 whole chapters, and then he tells us exactly why he wrote his gospel, why he wrote the book of John. And this is what he says. He says, Jesus did all these other signs in the presence of the disciples, and, and those didn't get written in the book, but these are written, and then he says, the so what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I'll just stop there. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And some of you will say, of course I do. And others of you will say, I'm actually sure, not sure I know what that means. <laughs> right? What, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What, what is, again, the Christ? It goes on, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, a topic we'll get to next week, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And there's the payoff, right? There's the reward of it all. That by believing that Jesus is the Christ, you might have life in his name. This is not insignificant stuff. This is of primary importance to understand what the Christ is. But my guess is, a lot of you probably don't. If I asked you to come up right now and just kind of sat you on this chair and I said, um, what is, what's the Christ? Uh, like, what would, just kind of go through that process in your mind. What would, what would you say? And I'm going to guess that many of you have been in church, uh, well, your whole lives. And you might have trouble answering that question. And if you think it's just John saying this, it's not. There's actually uh, pretty much every other uh, book of the New Testament says something similar. And so here's where we get into reading some scripture together. Uh, Acts chapter 5, if you turn there, Acts chapter 5, starting in, well, verse 42, we read the following, Acts 5, 42. Every day in the temple... And from house to house, they, that is the disciples, did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Right, this is the content of what they're teaching. They're going around and they're, they're preaching and they're teaching that the Christ is Jesus. Or, a few chapters later in Acts 9, 22, Saul, who is Paul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that, and was he trying to prove? Well, Jesus was the Christ. Or, a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 18, 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. You'll notice that in all of these examples, we're dealing with a Jewish audience, right? Whether it's the temple, or the synagogues, or uh, Paul, or Silas, or Timothy teaching the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. The last example would be uh, perhaps the most central uh, to the Gospels, 
which is when Jesus comes to the disciples in a hidden moment, and he asks them first, like, who, what do people say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says what? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. So what does it all mean? What does it all mean? And uh, what is a Christ? Well, uh, the Christ is the same word. Well, this is a, a Greek word. Uh, the Hebrew equivalent is Messiah, right? We all know this word as well. Christ, Messiah, equal sign in between. Go ahead and do that. Uh, well, this means to paint or to smear. That's, that's what these words mean. In fact, uh, the word Christ, if you were to find it in non-religious language in the ancient world, you might use it to paint the house or to smear something on your walls. Or a very religious way to put it would be to anoint. This is how we usually say it, to anoint. And we had a passage today from the Old Testament in which David was anointed with oil. That is, he was smeared with oil, and something happened to him, right? And so in this way, you can put an equal sign between all of these. Christ equals Messiah equals the anointed one. In some ways, this word anoint, we've, we've put onto it a lot of uh, important uh, baggage, good baggage, uh, but we've, uh, we've, we've put onto it a lot of important baggage. But in an ancient context, it might not have had all of that meaning. Unless, and this is what we need to do this morning, unless you tie this word and this idea to two things. First, very specific anointed people in the Old Testament. And it's not just one person in the Old Testament who is anointed, it's actually a number of people get anointed throughout the Old Testament. You could say that all of these people are messiahs. Now, this would be to be misunderstood, probably, because there's this other way in which we talk about the Christ or the Messiah, which is at the tail end of a very long narrative that stretches from the beginning of Genesis to the beginning of the New Testament. And in this way, the Jews are waiting for the hope of Israel. They're waiting for this Christ, for this Messiah, for this anointed one to fulfill everything that has come before them in the Old Testament. This is what they're waiting for. All right, so in the Old Testament, who are these messiahs that we meet? Let's start there first. Simply put, prophet, priests, and kings get anointed with routine. Well, actually, the prophet's not as routinely. One prophet gets anointed, and it's the prophet Elisha. Elijah uh, gives this command in, uh, that he is supposed to be uh, to anoint Elisha, right? Outside of this prophetic anointing, we, it, it's hard to find. But the other two happen all over the place. Priests, starting way back in the book of Exodus with Aaron, 
They are anointed with oil. In fact, it's not just the priest, it's all the priestly stuff that gets anointed as well. And so I could read to you from Exodus 40, uh, and I will. Uh, There's actually this very long uh, passage that I was going to read, but I'm going to skip half of it. And if you've got your Bibles in front of you, Exodus 40, uh, starting in verse 1 through 8, I'll simply tell you that that part of the passage is, this is how you set up a tabernacle, right? This is how you set it up. And a tabernacle is run by whom? By the priests, right? This is who runs the tabernacle. And so then, in, in starting in verse 9 through 15, well, this is what I want to read to you. And we'll notice the word anoint and what happens with the anointing as we read through it. So Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 9, goes like this. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Let's just stop there a second. You'll notice it's not just the people now that are being anointed. It's all the stuff that's connected to the tabernacle. And just in case we're not on the same page here, a tabernacle is a temple. It's a portable temple, right? It's a movable one that goes through the desert with the people of Israel as they're marching toward the promised land. And so this is the very house of God. And so it must be holy. It must be consecrated. It must be set apart. And sure enough, we have the anointing oil that serves this purpose to consecrate it and to make it holy. And it continues, verse 10, You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and that the altar may become most holy right? If we're going to have a sacrificial system, it needs to be a holy, set-apart sort of sacrificial system. And so what do they do? Well, they anoint it with oil in order to make it holy. Continuing on, you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. Right? So Aaron is being set apart as somebody who is capable of being a priest for God. And he's anointed in this way. And his sons, who will work with him and for him, they are anointed in this way as well. And they go on, You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And this Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did it. And so what do we find here? We find these anointed people, they have a very specific task. They're priests, right? Their task is to, their go-betweens between God and the people of Israel. And their task is to keep Israel holy. And their task is to do the remission of sins and to uh, allow for people to bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle and to the temple later on. And they must be holy and they must be consecrated. And so therefore, these are special people 
who are anointed with oil. We could call them messiahs, but we generally speaking don't do that. Nevertheless, that's the word, if you were reading in a Hebrew Bible, Mashiach is right there. All right, third category of people. We've got your prophet, your priest, and lastly, you've got your kings. And this is straight out of today's passage, right? 1 Samuel chapter 16, 13 is what I read today. Then Samuel, the prophet took the horn of oil and anointed, right, smeared David in the midst of his brothers. And what happens to David in this moment? Well, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David is a king, and therefore David needed to be anointed in order to be God's king. All of the kings of Israel need to be anointed. In fact, Saul, before David, was anointed as well. There are a couple scenes in 1 and 2 Samuel that may cause confusion to you. Because, well, David, in one scene, had the opportunity to kill Saul. He's literally running from Saul through the desert, And he has this opportunity to kill Saul. Do you remember this? He doesn't do it. I'll read you the passage. And it says this in 1 Samuel 24, 6. He says, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Namely, I should kill this man. And why? Because he's the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He says it twice. Saul is the Lord's Messiah. Again, if you want to say it that way, the Mashiach, the anointed one. He's a special person, and David knows well enough to know you don't mess with the Lord's anointed, no matter how bad this man may be, no matter if he's trying to kill you or not. Which gets me to the second confusing scene that happens, and this time at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Saul has been killed, and you might think that David would rejoice and be happy in this moment. This is what we find in 2 Samuel. Instead, we find this. I believe it's in uh, 2 Samuel 1, starting in verse 14. David said to this man, Uh, who, by the way, uh, is claiming to have killed Saul. He says, uh, David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy, here it is again, the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. Wow. This is, go execute the man who has just claimed to have killed your arch enemy. This is, this is what David is doing. Right? Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, and here it is again, I have killed the Lord's anointed. If, 
if you don't believe me by now, like, I don't know what else it's going to take. There's something really special about being the Lord's anointed, right? It's the sort of person you don't mess with. You don't mess with the priests. You don't mess with the prophets. And you don't mess with the Lord's kings. Not even if they're trying to kill you. And so to answer these riddles, like why wouldn't uh, David want to kill Saul? Or, or why does David have this one guy executed? The answer is quite simple. Saul was God's anointed one. He was set apart. And he had the Spirit of God upon him. He was maybe even holy, or it was at some point. And so David knows that you don't mess with a holy man. A couple other passages to take a look at, where we find that kings are indeed the anointed ones. Psalm, Psalms, uh, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 2, during the very beginning. Why do the nations rage? Remember that line. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against, here's the phrase, the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord and his anointed. Well, who are they talking about? Well, David is talking about himself, actually. The, the anointed one is David. He's the king. And the, 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 uh, the kings and, and of the earth and, and the rulers, well, they're, they're plotting together against Israel. And they're plotting not just against Israel, they're plotting against the Lord and the Lord's anointed, that is, the king. Now, this passage, Psalm 2, is going to get used any number of times in the New Testament period, including in the New Testament itself, to describe Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one in this scene as well, and the Lord is also God. So, for example, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, 17 to 18, we find this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which is to say, of his anointed one. The kingdom of the Lord and his anointed one, and he shall reign forever and ever. And in some ways, it's, it's paralleling back to Psalm 2, right? Where the, the nations were plotting against the Lord and his anointed. And in this case, God and the Son, Jesus. But it goes on in verse 16. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fall on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And then it quotes again from Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
But there's this other way in which we need to understand what it means to be a Messiah, to be a Christ, and to expect and wait for a Christ. And it has this larger narrative of Scripture in mind, right? And so if we have prophet, and we have priests, and we have kings, and there's any number of, quote, messiahs or, or anointed ones, anyway, who pop up here and there throughout our Old Testament, there is a sense in which it's all heading for one plot point. And it goes like this. The narrative goes like this. I'll give you the very short version of it here. Joshua and Judges, in these books, what happens? Well, Israel moves into the land. They begin to defeat the Canaanites, and they begin to kick out their oppressors there, and they begin to set up shop. And when they do, they get into the land, they say to themselves, you know what, we need a king. This actually is somewhat problematic. Uh, I don't have time to go into it. But this is what they say, we need a king. And so uh, God gives them first Saul. This does not go well, which kind of sets the wrong trajectory of earthly kingship. But then Saul, well, he goes by the wayside, and we get King David, right? And at this point... We have what is the golden age of Israel's history. David is king. And in 2 Samuel 7, we have this critical promise that gets made to David and to David's uh, children and their children and their children and their children. And the promise is one that I've read from this pulpit before. It goes like this, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. Therefore, Thus you shall say to my servant David, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off your enemies before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdoms forever, forever. And I will be to, uh, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Man, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this goes on for a long time. And if you were to put yourself into uh, 10th century, 9th century, 8th century B.C. Israel, you would look back on this promise and you would think, God is with us. This promise lives on. And God is faithful to this promise. And then you'd get to the 8th century and to the 7th century and to the 6th century. 
and some bad things would start to happen. And the Assyrians would come in and they would take away half the land. And then the Babylonians, they would come in and they'd take away the other half. And then suddenly there's no Davidic king on the throne. And it sets up a real problem, doesn't it? Because we have this expectation that there is an anointed one, that there is a Messiah figure that should be reigning on a throne, and he's not. And so there begins to be an expectation, a hope, that the narrative that gets started in the Old Testament will find its fulfillment in someone, anyone, Someone come along and be Israel's king once again. This is the great hope of Israel that gets set up in the Old Testament and that gets fulfilled in the New Testament. And so to be the Christ, to answer the question that I posed at the very beginning, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we mean any number of things, actually, but we mean at least two things. One, he is that king, right? He is a king. He is anointed one. In the, in the line of Davidic kings, just like David was an anointed king. But he's not just any king. He's the king, right? He is the Christ. He is the person who fulfills the hopes of Israel that were set up well, in the entirety of the Old Testament. That is what it means when John gets to the end of his gospel and he says, I've been writing all of these things to you because I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is this one who fulfills it all, who fulfills our hopes. It's just a little different than I think most people expected back then, and frankly today as well. Because, well, every king needs a kingdom, and of course this is what Jesus comes preaching. He comes preaching the kingdom of God, and Jesus himself is the king. What is odd about Jesus' kingdom and his kingship is, well, you can start with how he, beca he becomes king how he is indeed enthroned, the sort of crown he wears, right? When he is told that he is indeed the king of the Jews, all of this is happening while he is being killed. This is a different sort of kingdom and kingship than Israel was looking for. And it's no wonder that when Paul goes around preaching to all of these Jews across the Mediterranean, they kind of look at him funny and they say, that, that doesn't sound like the Messiah we were hoping for. We were hoping for something, well, I don't know, maybe a little different, a little more power, a little more like kicking out uh, the people who are in charge and, and setting up a, a Davidic kind of kingdom. Well, that, that's what we want. And that's what we hope for. But that's not the sort of thing that Jesus seems to be doing, is it? Nevertheless, I want to return to two spots in now in the Gospel of Mark. So turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Very beginning, 
opening line of Mark goes like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is one of these lines that, again, is chock full of lots of theological importance. If I could rephrase all of this for you, here's how I would rephrase Mark's opening line, or retranslate it. The regal pronouncement, that is the gospel, a gospel, by the way, is a regal pronouncement, a pronouncement from a king. The regal pronouncement of the arrival of the anointed king, Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Davidic king. That is what this opening line says. I know we can't hear it that way because we've read it so many times, and the words have become something else to us. But this is what Mark is starting with. I had another passage I was going to go through as well, but I see we're running out of time. We might have some kids out there. I've got a few important things to conclude with here. There's, there's four things. Stick with me. I promise they're important. So what is the question I want to ask. So why does any of this matter, right? What does this mean? And coming back to John 20, why does he want us to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, one, as I've already said, it is the fulfillment of the whole narrative of Scripture. We have these kingdoms in the past that have no king on them anymore, no king on the throne anymore. And so when we get to Jesus, he not only fulfills the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, it turns out it's the kingdom of the world that Jesus is eyeing. The second thing is that when we say that Jesus is the king, we are saying to our own selves, just as we said last week, that we are submitting to Christ's reign over this world. If Christ is indeed the king, then when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying that you and I, we are servants to this king. The third thing is this. Jesus doesn't just punch your ticket into the kingdom of heaven. He actually goes about the business throughout his life of showing you how that kingdom works. Of showing you how the kingdom works. He shows you its rules. He shows you its priorities, its values. And I wonder if sometimes we don't see it. Do you see it? Do you see the way Jesus is acting and think to yourself, well, this is what the new kingdom looks like? Because it turns out it is quite different from our own, certainly American, but Western, or, or the, frankly, the history of the world's value systems. Christ's death is simultaneously a few things. One, it's that which puts us in right relationship with God the Father. And this is sometimes what we talk about when we say we are punching our ticket to get into heaven, right? But it's more than that. Jesus' death is also a demonstration of what faithfulness to God looks like. Willingness to go to any and every end at the request of the Father. When we talk about having faith in Christ, we can look to Christ 
because he first had faith in the Father, and he trusted the Father and was redeemed from the grave in the same way we expect to be redeemed as well. And the third thing is this. Christ's death fulfills his own words about what it means to be a ruler and an authority in the kingdom of God. Last scripture I will quote today. Matthew 20, 25 to 28, Jesus says this. Jesus calls his disciples together, calls them to, uh, and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones, again, the, all of this is like ruler language, uh, their great ones exercise authority over them. And then he says this, It shall not be this way among you. And he, the king, should know. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever wants to be great, you might even put in there a ruler, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and who would be first must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there it is, right? This is the sort of kingdom that Jesus is inviting us into. This is the sort of king that we serve. This is the sort of king who reigns on high. The king of the new kingdom is telling us about the new value system that exists in the kingdom of God. So if Jesus is indeed the king, what kind of king is he? Any number of things could be said here, but I will leave us today with a quote from John of the Cross. If you know anything about John of the Cross, uh, usually it's that he writes about the dark night of the soul. He, he's a man who, who knows pain, he knows suffering, and he writes this. O blessed Jesus, give me stillness of soul in you, let your mighty calmness reign in me. Rule me, he says, O king of gentleness, king of peace. Now, I don't know about you. That is the kind of king I want to serve. Let's pray together. God, our Father Almighty in heaven, you are the powerful maker of heaven and of earth. Jesus, the Christ, who reigns with the Lord forever, you are indeed the king of this universe. And you sit on your throne, and you sit there in power, yes, but also in gentleness and in peace. And Holy Spirit, you live and you move among us, and you change hearts and lives, and we ask today that you change ours. And pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.